339 AD, a baby was born to a Christian couple in what is now Germany. Um, they were sort of well-to-do parents, um, and they loved Jesus, and they called their baby uh, Boy Ambrose. Now, there is a legend, so this isn't scriptural or canonical, but legend has it that when Ambrose was a little baby, a swarm of bees were in the area, and they settled on his face. And you're like, well, where's this going, Kevin? Well, apparently, this swarm of bees settled on this child's face and then left, and all they left was um, like a drop of honey. And the father, who seems to have been an ingenious and uh, uh, prophetic kind of guy, saw this as an indication that his boy would have a honeyed tongue. Um, I don't know what the rest of you would think if your child's face has been covered with bees, but I just love the idea that this guy's, yeah, this guy's going to, my son's going to be a real talker. Um, And and, and so this is the sort of legend that accompanied his birth. Um, Anyway, so uh, he was uh, wealthy and he took a career in the military. And um, I'm going to read a bit from... uh, Mac Culloch's uh, History of Christianity, it says this. Ambrose was brought up a Christian, but he was very much a gentleman. He was a son of the Praetorian prefect. Um, this great aristocrat predictably embarked on a military career. You know, nothing's changed, does it? You know, the, uh, uh, the wealthy often go there. Um, embarked on a military career, equally predictable, ending up as governor of the Italian province, um, whose capital, Milan, was the chief imperial headquarters in the West. So the guy had money, and sure enough, he found life uh, um, uh, one great big uh, um, success story where he became in charge of an area in Italy. And he goes, and it says this on. Here, in around uh, 374 AD, matters took an unexpected turn. The Christian population gathered to choose a new bishop, and they were bitterly divided between the Nicenes and the supporters of the Homean compromise. So there were Christians arguing and they were arguing over a matter of theology. One group wanted to make Jesus slightly less than the Father and the other said that Jesus uh, was the same as his heavenly Father. And if you don't know what the right orthodox answer to that is, I have failed you and you need to go on Wikipedia. Um, So it goes on. And then um, Ambrose came along at the head of a detachment of troops to keep order. You know, sometimes we think Christian churches are in a bad way, but when they have to send the army in to keep a church in order, that is pretty grim. But that's what they had to do here. So they sent the army in, and Ambrose was part of that army coming in. Um, And as he was delivering some crisp military sentiments to the crowd, a child's voice pierced the church and he said Ambrose for bishop and it was the perfect solution and the mob took up the shout Uh, he was consecrated bishop after an decently hasty progress so I think the guy was kind of confirmed baptized and ordained within a week 
So Elin would have a fit if that happened here. Um, the Church of England wouldn't do that. Uh, but, this, but needs must, apparently, in the 4th century. Um, and Ambrose uh, became from military leader to church leader in a week. Um, and there's a story also that they wanted to make him leader and he ran away and they had to drag him back and then make him thing. But um, that's beside the point. Um, and it was a perfect solution. And Ambrose proved a remarkable success. This uh, new church leader, who by all accounts was reluctant to be so, um, he had a really, really successful post um, as Bishop of Milan. So there were these heretics that said, yes, Jesus is a God, but they kind of wanted to make Jesus less than God. And Ambrose sort of kicked some doors in and bashed heads together. And uh, he established the orthodoxy of Jesus being on the same level as his father. Apparently, he gave away his vast wealth, which always endears me. You know, if you've got a rich person, and then the rich person becomes a church leader and they still remain rich, you kind of think, oh, that's a missed opportunity. But this rich guy gave away his wealth so he could become uh, Bishop of Milan. And the church wealth, I don't know if you've ever been to um, sort of St. Peter's uh, in Rome or been to another big church and seen the wealth there. Like, so there are even sort of big churches in Crawley that seem to have a measure of wealth. And uh, Ambrose... Uh, Bishop of Milan, he melted down all the church's gold, caused all the church treasurers to have heart attacks, and he gave it to the poor. And I really uh, like that as well. But my two favourite things about Ambrose was, first, there was an emperor, and he went into Ethiopia, and he killed a few civilians. And Ambrose was like, you may be emperor, but you are certainly not coming back into church. And the emperor was like, are you kidding me? I'm the emperor. And Ambrose says, no way, I'm in charge. And uh, so the emperor had to do um, um, sort of various acts of penitence to get back in because Ambrose goes, it is incompatible to go and kill civilians and come in to church, which I really liked. And then the second thing was that at funerals, when emperors have funerals, they're always told how great they are, all their accomplishments, all their conquests. And Ambrose, man of the people that was, talked about how fallible, how mistakes that they made, and completely undermined this illusion that the emperor were gods. Um, and uh, there was this uh, emperor Theodosius, and the best thing that... Uh, Ambrose said about him was that he was a humble guy. That was the top element of that funeral service. So Ambrose is uh, a fascinating character um, and um, he seems to have done a lot of good for the church and, and, and sort of solidified uh, uh, some measures of authority and truth. Anyway, you may be wondering, what on earth has this got to do with anything, Kevin? Well, I'm getting there. In 390 AD, he sent the Pope a letter. And in this letter, it says this. Let them give credit to the creed of the apostles, which the Roman church has always kept, preserved, undefiled. This, you may have missed it, this is the first ever reference to the earliest statement of faith outside of Scripture. 
Um, I don't know if you've ever read the Bible. Hands up if you've read some of the New Testament. I'm really hoping every hand goes up there. Um, so, the New Testament, it's not a long book by uh, uh, measures of books. I mean, uh, McCulloch's uh, History of Christianity is quite a bit longer uh, than the Bible. But there's a lot in it, and there's a lot to take in. And so what Christians have done through the ages, they've made up creeds, which they've taken what they think are the most important bits of Scripture and said, you need to know this. Uh, You need to know this fact over this other fact. So is it important that Jesus, when uh, he told the disciples to catch fish, is it important that they caught 153 fish? Or is it more important to look at who Jesus was and what he'd done? And Christians over the years have decided uh, um, in creeds what the primary bits of Scripture are, is. And the Apostles' Creed is the earliest record of... Um, Christians looking at the Bible. Legend has it, it's not scriptural, legend has it that each of the 12 disciples uh, added uh, one of these points that make up the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed is essentially the basis for most Orthodox faiths through the ages. If you go on our website, you will find a section called Things We Believe, and you will find... Everything that's in there on our uh, sort of things we believe. Um, I would like us all to stand together, if we can. And you need more than a broken foot to be an excuse not to stand. And I want us to read this out together. It's a statement of faith, what this church believes. Some of you are going to find out some new facts that you've just suddenly decided that you believe something that you didn't know. But uh, we're going to keep going and we'll see how it goes. So, number one. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and everlasting life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I got various different versions, and um, it's crept in that bit about him descending into hell. I'm not sure that that is something that we uh, approve of uh, with regard to uh, what's going on here. But everything else um, is something that we uh, would affirm here. I hope that you understand these different statements. These are 
bits of the Bible that have come to the fore that said, this is really important to know. If uh, it worries you about the Holy Catholic Church, Catholic just means uh, sort of the universal. And so it doesn't mean the Roman Catholic Church. I am uh, uh, not uh, um, sort of... Uh, pay allegiance to the Pope or anything, but there is an understanding that Jesus has his church and we're part of this holy universal church um, where there's this expectation that Jesus is come, will come again to judge everyone and um, there is that raising the importance of the forgiveness of sins um, and the resurrection of the body. If some of you thought you were just going to be spirits for eternity, surprise, that's not orthodoxy. That's a heresy to just think you're going to be a spirit for eternity. Um, And again, you're like, well, where are we going with this? Why is Kevin bringing this up? Well, I find it fascinating that in this very early composition of the important points, um, we find number three, that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary. We find, in, uh, out of these 12 points that uh, these, uh, uh, maybe the apostles who wrote it, uh, who created this creed, this was one of the important points about our faith. Now, John and Mark don't refer to Jesus' birth. And this has led some people to suggest that it's less important But right from the beginning of the Christian faith, Jesus' sort of birth story has been critical to our understanding of our faith. So Christmas might now be not the Christian feast that I would long for, but... That celebration of Jesus' birth seems to have been pivotal for Christians since the beginning. And so over the next three Sundays, we are going to linger over this arrival of Jesus. But we're going to do it slightly differently. We're going to tease out some of the implications um, And uh, hopefully you'll find yourself happier in your faith, which seems a good goal to have, and inspired to be a little bit more confident in sharing it. In March uh, 2016, there was an American hiker uh, in the... Um, sort of in, in northern Israel, and it seems uh, she was having a little rest, which is a great start of any story. So she's having a little rest, a little bit of hiking around northern Israel, and she saw something lying on the ground, and uh, she picked it up, um, and she thought it was just sort of a, a common coin um, of the area. Wonderfully, it was an incredibly rare gold coin back from the first century, and it honoured the Roman ruler Augustus. I don't know whether you can see it, um, but it actually says on the sort of right-hand side of the coin, Augustus, Um, and then uh, a sort of a flattering portrait of the uh, guy on the coin as well. 
If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2. It says this in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar, and what does it say? Augustus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, they came, to ha- um, came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. It's, what's it, the 8th of December, and I've already heard that passage umpteen times. Um, um, so goodness knows how familiar we're going to become again with it uh, uh, by the end of the, sort of the Christmas period. But um, in this account, we're given, if you look, some very specific information. We are given a very specific time frame. It talks about Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is not an imaginary guy that they fitted in to make the story sound more interesting. Caesar Augustus uh, was Caesar between 27 BC and 17 AD, uh, 14 AD. He was ruler then. There are documents to establish that. When Luke refers to that, he is giving us a story, not once upon a time, many moons ago, with sort of vague ideas. He is saying, in the rule of Caesar Augustus, which uh, these first century Christians would have gone, oh, that was then. This was so many years ago. And historians today recognize that Caesar Augustus really existed and ruled in that time, in that area, and there are coins to prove it, okay? So when Luke refers to that, we go, this bit's true. It's not made up, it's not fanciful language, it's not just religious talk. (coughs) Secondly, above, above and beyond the date, we are given a specific geographic location. We are given a, uh, some well-known places in Israel. If you have a GPS and you have um, a helicopter with some sort of uh, um, large fuel tank, you can use these following coordinates. 31.7054 degrees north, 35.2024 degrees east. And you will land slap bang in the middle of Bethlehem. It still exists today. When Luke refers to Bethlehem, again, it is not a land far away. It is not uh, a kingdom paved with gold. It is a factual geographic location that you can go to today, after church, preferably. Now, we don't know the exact location of Jesus' birth, 
but we know the time and we know the general geography. This faith that we have is not a vague uh, wish fulfillment. Oh, Jesus is lovely, isn't he? He's in my heart. It's not this sort of vague nonsense that you can sort of pick up in some sort of uh, spiritualist shop. There are specific historical, archaeological, geographical pointers that we can see Jesus existed then. The whole creed becomes nonsense if Jesus is not an historical figure. And just in case uh, you want more specifics, the text says that there were witnesses to this birth. There were uh, particular professionals who were around doing their job when they were called in to have a look at what was going on. We are told at Jesus' birthplace in Bethlehem, at the time of Caesar Augustus, there were shepherds out in the fields nearby. Funnily enough, if you go to those coordinates I read out to you earlier, you will be able to look and see on the fields and hills that surround Bethlehem, you will see... Shepherds, because the agricultural trade is still going on there. Um, And so suddenly, Luke gives us time and place and geography, and he gives us eyewitnesses as well, who we are, um, the first century Christians, would have been able to go to. And so, is this true? Did you see this? And you will find again and again in your scriptures names mentioned to prove to you that this happened and that this wasn't your, their imagination. Today, we can't go and double-check with the shepherds or any of the other people, but it was embedded in these scriptures because you could then. You can go and ask the various people if what was being said was true. And so again and again, Christians have noticed an emphasis on fact associated with Jesus' birth, and we have embraced and cherished the fact that we have this historical event with provable features that uh, should encourage us. I don't know, have you ever... um, Enjoyed or perpetuated an urban myth. Uh, one um, of our guys here recently learnt to drive, and I was dying to tell her this urban myth that I once uh, was told when I learnt to drive. And there's this great story of there's uh, uh, cars would go around with their lights off at night. And, like, instantly, like, if you saw that, you would feel, oh, I want to alert them to the fact they're driving around in the dark and it's dangerous. And you would flash them and uh, they would put their lights on. And then when I was learning to drive, someone said, no, no, it's like a gang initiation. And they're driving around with their lights on, you flash them, and then suddenly these gangs will pounce on you and nick your car. And the thing is... No one's ever had that's not happened to no one. I've never heard of anyone actually say that. Uh, 
If you ask, well, where did you hear it? They've read it on the internet at best. And that is the thing with urban myths. It's happened to no one actually physically. It's something that has been passed down from malicious driver to malicious driver. And um, it's a bit like the phrase is once upon a time or a long, long time ago or far, far away. There are just general words used to give it a place and time. But in Jesus' story, we're given Augustus, we're given Bethlehem, um, and we're given shepherds. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. says this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shetel, Shetel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor. Can you see your faces glaze over? And you're like, why is he reading all these names? Well, you keep going down and going down. And then in verse 16 it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And Matthew is very deliberate here. He says, Joseph, he was a real guy. His father was Jacob. His grandfather was this. His great-great-great-grandfather was that. And Matthew is incredibly deliberate to let you know that Joseph and Mary were real people. It wasn't Jesus was born to an anonymous couple far, far away. Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph, and Mary and Joseph were known parts of society that you could trace their lineage. Then Matthew tells us of the Magi. He tells us of specific people who witnessed uh, uh, Jesus after he was born. And it's fascinating, as you get through uh, Jesus' life in the Gospels, you suddenly find... Those that know Jesus and see him do miracles go, you can't be the Messiah, we know your parents. We know that you are part of history. You haven't just suddenly appeared from nowhere. You haven't just suddenly uh, um, sort of, uh, sort of materialised. We know where you've come from. We know where you live. We know who your parents are. We know who your brothers and sisters are. You can't be the Messiah. We know you too well. And that backs up what both uh, Matthew and Luke write, is that Jesus was born clearly into an historical context. And this meant that the people that were doubters have perfect reason to go, you can't be that. I know what school you went to. How can you be impressive? How can you be the son of God? From the beginning, our faith is tightly coupled not to vague aspirations or philosophy or a religious sentiment. It is firmly based in history. I didn't ask permission for this photo. I felt a bit guilty. Um, But she didn't ask me to take it down. Um, 
So last year, my family and I, we went on holiday, um, and on the way down to Cornwall, we visited St. Nectan's Glen in Cornwall. Um, And according to history, um, and I love this sort of stuff, in the 6th century, there is a Christian hermit who lived on top of a waterfall, and who wouldn't, you know? You got a waterfall and you're a Christian hermit and the two just go together. And apparently he had a bell that he would ring to warn ships uh, from crashing uh, into the, the cliffs nearby. And so there's this great story and there's a chapel there and whatever else. However, recently this Christian uh, story, this Christian place with uh, 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 this history of faith has morphed into the vaguest sense of spirituality you could ever conceive of. There is a gift shop there and I was kind of hopeful that it might be full of sort of monks habits and old bibles and sort of old etchings uh, from stuff. The gift shop is filled with healing crystals, tarot cards and weird scary ornaments that I had to uh, sort of shield my children's faces from because I wasn't sure what was going on with them. Um, And uh, actually, when we were there, there was some sort of person bathing semi-naked in the um, waterfall uh, and there was obviously some sort of ritualistic dance going on and we had to wait before we went and had a look at the waterfall and waited for them to finish. Um, But it's really common today that people have this very vague spirituality. Um, I was talking to someone the other day and they were like, yeah, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. And um, it means that they can go on Spotify and they can listen to worship songs and feel good things about a heavenly father that loves them and then they can go to yoga classes and breathe deeply and empty their mind of everything that was in there and they can visit mediums and contact the dead and all this hodgepodge of vague spirituality they don't really think it through and it comes together in uh, just this sort of morass lump nebulous form of spirituality. Christianity cannot exist in that environment. We have a blunt historical dimension of the incarnation. Jesus came 2,000 years ago under the rule of Caesar Augustus in the town specifically of Bethlehem. He was seen uh, by shepherds and magi. He was born to parents who were known in society. You cannot be vague about this. This is central and this is why the Apostles' Creed put it right at the beginning. Christianity has a historical and factual content that is wonderful and it's not up for grabs. And Jesus is not a vague, fuzzy figure that you can make him whatever you want. You know, we can often uh, think of Jesus and he becomes like a kindly uncle or a generous granddad uh, or something else, but Jesus is not those things. He was 
Jesus as revealed in scripture. He was born to Mary and Joseph. In, he was born as a Jew. And when you make Jesus something other than he was, if you make him just a good man, oh, I like reading the Sermon on the Mount, oh, it's nice to read those things. You know, I think he taught wise things. If you make him an angel, as some of the sects have done, or if you make him a great philosopher or um, someone uh, or an imaginary figure that we've just loaded with good sayings, When Jesus is not born to a virgin in Bethlehem during the reign of Caesar Augustus, it is a fantasy. I wonder who the Jesus is you're worshipping when we go through the worship songs. Is it the factual Jesus that was born then? Or is it some nebulous idea that you have manufactured in your head? Because Christianity has a history of saying, you don't get to make up what Jesus was like. You don't get to imagine what you like Jesus to be. He is a historical character that existed uh, here and then. And you know what? You don't get saved by your imagining Jesus. If your Jesus is not exactly the Jesus of the scriptures, then your Jesus is not the historical Jesus. Then your Jesus never came, lived, died and rose again. And your Jesus is certainly not sat at the right hand of the Father The question is, who is your Jesus? If it is anything other than the Jesus that was born to a Virgin Mary, it is not Jesus Christ that Christians have worshipped for 2,000 years. Have a look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, says this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So the event of Jesus was a big deal and lots of people wrote about it. We've got the four Gospels, but it looks like there are a lot of others written. And then he goes on. Just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind... Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, everyone say carefully. Carefully. This is Luke doing your own work for you. Luke has carefully investigated it so you can take his word for it. I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning and I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Um, And we don't know whether that is a historical character or sort of a general term for uh, sort of Christian friends so that you may know the certainty everyone say certainty Certainty. the certainty of the things you have been taught so Christians were like that's Jesus he sounds a bit too good to be true or I'm not too sure uh, um, that he really existed and Luke says no I've talked to the eyewitnesses I have talked to people that lived alongside him, that knew his mum and dad, that went to his same school, that lived in the same town, that saw him do these miracles, that saw him uh, die on the cross. It is likely that Luke had words with Jesus' own mother, Mary, and that features in Luke's Gospel. Once again, as we enter this epic season of Christmas Uh, in the West that just goes on for months and months. 
I want you to be encouraged that Matthew and Luke have written these things down so you can be certain what you believe. You can be certain that Jesus existed, that he lived for a certain time span on earth. The gospel writers go to great lengths to write down knowable names that if you were in the first century, you could uh, double-check. They have included visitable places. If you want, after church, you can go and visit Bethlehem yourself. Um, they have referred to recognisable practices and cultures. And so when we believe Luke and Matthew talk about Jesus being born to a virgin we can be sure and certain that these things happened. There is never a bad time to read a bit of Tim Keller. And it says this. C.S. Lewis was a world-class literary critic. When reading the Gospels, he noted, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends and myths all of my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like the Gospels. Of this Gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative and if you find C.S. Lewis a little difficult to understand Tim Keller and his generosity explains it further Lewis meant that ancient fiction was nothing like modern fiction modern fiction is realistic it contains details and dialogues and reads like an eyewitness account this genre of fiction however was only developed within the last 300 years in ancient times romances epics or legends were high and remote Details were sparse and only included if they promoted character development or drove the plot. That is why if you are reading Beowulf or the Iliad, you don't see characters noticing the rain or falling asleep with a sigh. In modern novels, details are added to create the aura of realism, but that was never the case in ancient literature. The gospel accounts are not fiction. In Mark chapter 4, we are told that Jesus was asleep on a cushion in the stern of a boat. In John chapter 21, we are told that Peter was a hundred yards out in the boat when he saw Jesus on the beach. He then jumped out of the boat and together they caught 153 fish. In John 8, as Jesus listened to the men who caught women in adultery, we are told, we are told he doodled with his finger in the dust. We are never told what he was writing or why he did it. None of these details are relevant to the plot or character development at all. If you or I were making up an exciting story about Jesus, we would include such remarks just to fill up the story's air of realism. But that kind of fictional writing was unknown in the first century. The only explanation for why an ancient writer would mention the cushion, the 153 fish, and the doodling in the dust is because these details have been retained in the eyewitness's memory. If you're a Christian, you have given in to the weight of historical evidence. You've gone, I give up. It's true. 
And when you do that, you give in to the truth of Scripture and then it leads you by the nose to the clear fact that though it seems unlikely that Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God and that his death effectively saves us from our sins when we trust in him. There is this wonderful leading from historical truth to religious truth. And again, you may be wondering why take an entire sermon to explore that. But I think it's important. Our faith is not dependent on our preferences, on our willpower, on our feelings. I don't know if you are like me, but sometimes you can feel really like a Christian and sometimes you come in here and you wonder if anyone's going to find out that you're a fraud. You sometimes feel like a glorious Christian and you can shout along to Tim's songs and say, yes, I believe in Jesus. And sometimes you're sat in here thinking, I can barely uh, have the guts to stand up and pretend that this is real for me. But the wonderful thing is that whatever your state of mind does not alter the fact that Jesus is a historical figure, that he died for you, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and your sins are forgiven. Your salvation is secure regardless of the highs of euphoria of worshipping at River Camp to the lows of a Monday morning when the washing machine breaks and the children play up. Your faith is based on something secure. Today, you may be depressed. You may have no money in your pockets because you've spent it all on Christmas. You may be depressed because of stuff going on in your head or stuff going on in your life. You may have discovered that your faith is not what you thought it was going to be like. You thought that you were going to see miracles every day and part of a church fellowship that just sort of uh, invaded the world. And you look around and go, this isn't what I bought into. And Jesus, the historical Jesus, looks at you and says, you are filled with all sorts of imaginations. Your, what, your, your brain goes on all sorts of flights of fantasy. But I am real. I was born and I died and I rose again. And you can take that to the bank. You may have heard intellectual scoffing at Christianity. This book is full of this guy saying, um, I don't think this is true and I don't think that is true. But you will find that he is wrong. You will find again and again that uh, the arguments he uses are not as persuasive as they first seem. You may have heard uh, someone on TV or read a book that scoffs at your Christianity. But you know what? There are conspiracy theorists that believe that the earth is flat and we never went to the moon. There are always sceptics to whatever happens. And Jesus is an historical grounded fact and all these other people that are gainsaying and pretending it didn't happen, they are the flat earthers and the moon landing deniers. You may have been tempted to water down your theology because it is diff- 
difficult sometimes to live the Christian way in this world that we exist in. You may be tempted to dilute your morality or dilute your Christian practices. But I want to assure you, you, your faith is grounded in something sure and certain that you can have perfect faith in. All that personal experience is white noise. All the knowledge that seems to come against it, all the culture that seems to undermine it, is all white noise against something that happened 2,000 years ago and we are still enjoying the benefits of today. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you that 2,000 years ago you sent your son Jesus to die for us. We thank you uh, that this wasn't some sort of fairy tale, but it was a historical event with eyewitnesses, with dates, uh, with um, archaeological proof and geographical certainty. And Heavenly Father, I pray as we go forward in this Christmas time, as uh, perhaps we find it difficult for all sorts of reasons, Lord God, I pray that we may enjoy and rest in the fact that you certainly came, that you certainly died, that you certainly rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that our faith doesn't rely on our feelings, doesn't rely on how good we are at thinking it relies on what jesus did and lord god i pray that we would be good at sharing this good news with other people and all god's people said amen Amen.